death was arrested, my life began. If you think of that in terms of Colossians, when Christ gave his life for us, uh, we get a new life. Our life begins. We're new creatures in Christ. Uh, the old is gone. The new has come. Amen. And uh, happy Father's Day to fathers and grandfathers and at least a couple great-grandfathers I'm aware of. So far, no, that's not possible for me. Hallelujah. Okay. So this is it. Uh, apologies if you're new or if uh, kind of been in and out a little bit. Uh, this is our last message ever. No, this is our last message in the Apostle Paul's four-chapter, 95-verse letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, counting today, it's taken us 19 weeks, 19 messages, which is close to about, uh, not 19 hours, probably 16, 17 hours. That averages out to about 10 minutes per verse. That's pretty good. Not that we spent 10 minutes on every verse, but some we spent a lot of, you know, average. Now, why am I telling you this? Uh, well, because I want us to recognize that when the church in Colossae received this letter, they certainly didn't go through it uh, like we have. Basically, when the letter arrived, the believers gathered and it was read aloud. They probably read it a few times, and they certainly made a few copies to send to other churches in the area. We see this in verse 16 of chapter 4. And when this letter, Paul instructs, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the Colossians and the Laodiceans in the same area, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey area, both received letters from Paul. The Colossians read their letter and they exchange with the Laodiceans, whose letter has been lost. So clearly the Colossians didn't spend 16 hours methodically going through uh, either letter. So, why did we? Well, basically I need a job. You know, that's what I get paid for, right? No, seriously, think about it. They were reading a letter uh, written specifically to them, to their addressing their circumstances. It was written during their time, their culture that they lived in, uh, and it was written in the language that they spoke, which was Greek. Think about all the time I've spent saying in the culture of Paul's day, or in the Greek or Roman culture, they believe this, or in the Greek, this word has this range of meaning. It means this or that. But the Colossian believers didn't have to do that. They were all basically Greek uh, uh, language and culture scholars. It was their language, their culture. But as those who, uh, who are close to 2,000 years removed from the writing, who are in a totally different culture, speak a totally different language, and were not part of the Colossian church that Paul is writing to, it naturally takes us time, effort, study, to come to the same understanding and application as the Colossians probably did when they first read the letter. Not that they didn't preach they didn't talk about it and discuss it and things like that, but, but it just 
came a little more natural to them. That's why I took uh, 19 weeks, counting this week, to go through this relatively short letter. And this is true for all scriptures. Uh, We took 82 weeks to go through Romans, if you remember. If we, living today, far removed from the language and culture, uh, when the Bible was written, if we're seeking to truly understand and apply what we read, what any given author inspired by the Holy Spirit meant, it's going to take time, effort, uh, not to mention prayer. It's the Spirit of God that reveals these meanings to the Colossians, to us. However, there's at least one problem with uh, taking so much time. That is, we can fail to see the overall picture of what the author, and in this case Paul, is expressing. We're not necessarily impacted by the whole letter at once, as those in the Colossian church were. Now to combat this, each week I try to summarize what's gone before, uh, so that we can get the context of what we're looking at on any given Sunday. But that can become tedious and take time we don't have. So what can happen is we get focused on the verses of the day, but fail to understand and apply them in the overall picture of the letter. If you remember, this is what Sean preached about a number of weeks ago. How long ago was that, Sean? Months ago, maybe? Uh, He advocated reading large portions of Scripture, whole books of the Bible. Now, with that in mind, even though I considered it, today we're not going to read aloud in one sitting the entire uh, letter of Colossians, which wouldn't be a bad idea, but I'll leave that to you. You guys have Bibles. But we're going to summarize and read much of the entire letter. I've divided the message into three parts, uh, three points in your notes. You can even fill in the blanks now. I'm going to give it all to you up front. First two points we'll be reviewing. We're going to review both the context of Paul's letter to the Colossians, that's point one, and the content of Paul's letter to the Colossians, that's point two. And then we'll finish uh, with the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Colossians, that's point three. And I have two main purposes for doing this. First, uh, since we've spent, up to now, 18 Sundays going through this letter in detail, we, or most of us, if you've been here, hopefully already understand much about the content. And so we've been equipped uh, to see and be impacted by its overall message. This applies both to today as I preach Uh, this summary message, but more importantly, this applies to your future uh, reading and studying of Colossians, which I highly recommend. So now Colossians, if you've been through this study, is sort of under your belt. You have way more understanding uh, of it than the the average uh, person who just picks up a Bible. You've been given a firm Colossians foundation. And now you, again, always in the power of the Spirit, will be able to better understand, correctly apply what's written as you read and study this letter yourself. You'll be able to remember, oh, that meant that. Okay, that's in this context. So first, I want us to be impacted by the overall message of Colossians today and beyond. This will be the main application of point two, the content of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And then second... As we look at this letter written by the Apostle Paul in one sitting, 
he probably wrote it in one sitting, and he, we can, we're going to look at it in one sitting as well. I want us to consider his heart. We didn't touch on this much as we went through the letter because he doesn't write much about himself. But I want us to see Paul's heart for the Colossians and thus his heart for all believers. This will be our application for points one and three, the context and conclusion of Paul's letter. Paul provides a much-needed example of how our heart should be towards other believers. We got a taste of this last week, if you remember, from Epaphras, and we'll talk about him as well. But I think this is something we all, I, need to understand and apply. In fact, for me, this was a, a very convicting message to prepare. You see, for those who claim the name of Christ, there are two distinct ways to live, to feel, if you will. One is to maintain a small heart that's distant from other people. This is by far the safest way to live. If you do this, it results in far less sorrow and pain. If your goal is to avoid uh, the troubles of life, your path is clear. Do not entangle yourself with other people. Avoid relationships. If you do this, you'll dodge much of the messiness of life. And unfortunately, many Christians, it seems, get through life with a minimum of sorrow and pain by having a small, distant, unengaged heart. But there's another way to live. This is the way that we touched on with Epaphras, and this is the way we'll be we'll clearly see in the life of the Apostle Paul. That is living a life that seeks to develop, uh, cultivate, to grow a large heart for other people. A heart that ministers to the messy lives of others. But be warned, if you engage the surgeon general or the surgeon pastor warns you, if you do this, if you engage with people, you will be susceptible to much more pain and sorrow than those who remain distant. However, you will also experience much more joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose. God has called us to be in community, to engage in the lives of one another. And most importantly, it's the large heart, the large-hearted, the heart that seeks to minister to others that is blessed by experiencing the filling and power of the Holy Spirit. For to engage with others, to minister to others, we must have the power of God's Spirit. If you've ever taken this on, if you've ever got engaged in the life of someone else, you know this. Lord, I can't do this. Lord, this is a struggle. I need you. We must have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can see how necessary these fruits, fruit, this fruit are to those with an engaged heart. And how unnecessary most of those, most of these are to those with an unengaged heart. Who needs patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness if they're not spending time with people? I guess I need to be good to myself. That's what people tend to focus on, right? Also, and obviously, the impact of these two different kinds of hearts is dr drastically different. Small, unengaged hearts, though safe and protected, never uh, really contribute anything. No one benefits 
from them because they choose not to be involved. On the other hand, large engaged hearts, though vulnerable, also have a great impact in the lives of others. As Pastor Kent Hughes writes, cultivate deafness and we will never hear discord, but neither will we hear the glorious strains of a great sympathy. symphony. I know what I wrote, what he wrote. Cultivate blindness and we will be spared the ugly, but we will never see the beauty of a sunset or a bird on wing. Cultivate a small heart and life may be smooth sailing, but we will never know the heady wind of the Holy Spirit in our sails, the power and exhilaration of being born along by the Spirit and accomplishing great eternal things for God. Cultivate a small heart, and we certainly will never have a great heart like the Apostle Paul's. And as we take our final look at Paul's letter to the Colossians, I want us to again see his heart, his engaged heart, that we might be inspired by him that we might follow him as he followed Christ and become a large-hearted, engaged people ourselves. And it's not too late. It's not too late for any of us. So now we turn to our first point, the context of Paul's letter to the Colossians. We see Paul's large heart in the reasons why he wrote this letter. If you remember, he was under house arrest in Rome, so context, Paul's in Rome which meant he was uh, chained to a praetorian guard day and night. His feet, which had walked much of the Roman Empire, now couldn't even walk across the room by himself. But his great heart continued to impact the world as he wrote some of the mo his most powerful letters. Colossians, of course, Philemon, Ephesians. Letters that, that we have today in our Bibles, in the Scriptures. So that's Paul's context. He's in prison in Rome. Now, over a thousand miles from Rome, there was a man named Epaphras who also had a large heart, which we talked about last week. He was a leader in the small house church in Colossae. He'd probably come to know Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Remember, Paul never really went to Colossae. He was in Ephesus and people came and saw him. Epaphras had gone back to Colossae where God had used him to proclaim the gospel. So even though Paul himself never visited Colossae, through his ministry to Epaphras and, and others, Philemon probably being one, Colossians, Colossian people were coming to Christ. They were experiencing new life in Christ. They were set free, if you will. We've talked about this over our, the 19 weeks, uh, 18 weeks, this new life in Christ. But there were dark uh, demonic forces at work. Apparently, people began attending or infiltrating the Colossian church. These false teachers sought to divert the Colossians from their relationship with God, divert them from their new life in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 8, we get a summary of the nature of their false teachings, so, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These false teachers promoted false deceptive philosophy, ways of thinking, philosophy based on human tradition, uh, and that human tradition was based on the elemental or demonic spirits of this world. And most damaging 
What they were teaching was not according to, it was not from Christ. It was not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now certainly Epaphras did his best to confront and combat these false teachers, but he needed help. And so he wisely decided to seek out Paul in Rome. We don't have a record of Paul's meeting with Epaphras, but we can surmise that Epaphras poured out his concerns to the apostle. There's these people, they're coming in and they sound so smart, you know, and they're diverting us. I can recognize it, but others are are being tempted to follow after them. And Paul responded, Epaphras, I can see your problem, but can you see mine? Do you see these chains? I've got some major issues of my own to deal with. I really need to focus on me right now. I'll certainly pray for you and the church, but you probably need to handle this on your own. Sound right? Now, that sounds like something I might say, but not Paul. When Paul heard what was happening in Colossae, he did what all Christians with large hearts do. He engaged. Epaphras' concern became Paul's concern. A deep concern engulfed his heart. We know this not only from the content of Colossians that he went ahead and wrote this thing that we've been studying to this church, but from Paul's heart for all churches. He states it to the Corinthians, he wrote, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I know, be anxious for nothing, but Paul had this deep anxiety, concern, I believe from God, for the churches. He didn't want them to be diverted from Christ. So Epaphras, knowing Paul's heart, seeks him out to help with the issues in Colossae. He tells Paul of the false teachers and how they're seeking to divert the believers from their new life in Christ, how they're promoting deceptive philosophies from the pit of hell, and Paul responds by engaging, by caring enough to get involved. He can't go there himself, but he can write this powerful letter that will both encourage the believers and refute the false teachers. We can imagine Paul hearing what's happening in Colossae. Maybe some righteous anger begins to be felt. These guys, who are these guys? Certainly Paul took some time to pray, to meditate on the situation, and when his heart and mind were ready, when he was filled with the Spirit of God, he called for his secretary to dictate the letter. And what we... And what he, out of a full, engaged, large, inspired by the Holy Spirit heart, gave the church was the beautiful letter to the Colossians. A letter written to combat these false teachers and help believers continue living their new life in Christ. And that brings us to our second point. And I'll mention now, and that, you know, we've got that picture of Paul's engaged heart. And you can ask yourself, would I? How how would I react? What would I do? When people come to me with issues, with problems, do I say, well, you know, I really don't have time. You know, I've got problems of my own. As far as I know, none of us are in prison, but uh, we have problems. Uh, I'm not diminishing those. But are are we willing to engage with those that come to us for help? Second point, the content of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So I'm going to try and give uh, you an overall picture of this letter. 
I'm not going to read or even mention every passage, but I want to highlight the main ideas. Two main ideas in particular, but we'll look at a number along the way. Paul begins with an encouraging celebration of the Colossian church. He calls them, if you remember back to the introduction, he calls them saints. He calls them faithful brothers. And he especially celebrated their faith in Christ. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, he, we read, Paul writing, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So this wasn't Paul's first exposure to the Colossians when Epaphras came. He, it was on his prayer list. He and his... Uh, co-workers that we talked about last week, they, they prayed, and a part of their prayer was praying for this church. And he was impressed with their faith. Paul thanks God that their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ produced in them present love for one another. Faith in Christ produces love for others, and that's based on their eternal hope in Christ. We have a hope in Christ. Our eternity is secure in Christ. We can we can, uh, we can uh, be free from fear of future and focus on loving one another. And then in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, he prays for them. The false teachers were promoting deceptive philosophies as a way to experience new life or some kind of life. So Paul prays for the knowledge of Christ for the Colossians. In verses 9 and 10, we see the heart of his prayer. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God. He prays for their minds. He prays for their actions. And following this prayer that the Colossians both know and walk, live for Christ, Paul goes on in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18 to give the foundation and motivation for this. And these verses, in these verses, we find the most glorious description of Christ in, all, in any epistle, in the, in the Bible, if you will. It's a tribute to the supremacy of Christ. This is the heart of the letter. We're going to spend a little time here. The false teachers are offering the Colossians what is not according to Christ, but Paul wants them to see Christ. He wants to give them a, a, a word picture, if you will, of Christ. This is who you are to know. This is who you're to live for. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme over all. Again, this is really the heart of the, of the letter, the theological cornerstone which all the rest is built on. So let's remember what we learned here. We see that Christ is supreme in four ways. First, He is the firstborn 
of all creation, which in Hebrew thought means he's the first in rank, in honor. Therefore, Christ is completely supreme in creation. There is none higher. There is no God above him. There is no God like him. Second, he is supreme because he is creator. All things were created through him. He created the invisible spirit world. He created the vast physical world. Einstein estimates that there are 10 octillion stars in the universe. I don't know where the number came from. But how many is that? Well, it's beyond our comprehension, really, I think. But you get an idea when you see it written out. Ten octillion looks like this. One with 28 zeros. And uh, that's referring to stars looking up into the sky. I mean, we can't count that many. But you can see the vastness. And Jesus created them all. He also created every unseen molecule or atom, every cork. Remember we talked about that's the smallest of things that science says. He created the beautiful rainbow, the intricate cell, and on and on. We visited the zoo lately, and the San Diego Zoo, and you know, going from cage to cage, the vast differences in animals and the variety and the beauty, and he created them all. And he did it all from nothing, nada, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He did it by the power of his word. Third, he is the sustainer of creation, and, and in him all things hold together. He not only created things, but he continues to hold it all together. Christ continues to keep it together, right? Apart from his continuous activity, all would disintegrate. He holds every speck of matter and every spiritual being together by his power. Fourth, finally, he's the goal of creation. All things were created through him and for or, or towards him. All creation is moving towards. The goal of creation is Christ. All things were brought forth at his command and all things will return to him at his command. All things are for his glory. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Paul wants the supremacy of Christ over all things to be solidified in the hearts of his readers. Because if you believe, this is why. Why is he writing this? Because if you believe Christ is eternal, without beginning and without end, that he's always was and always will be, if you believe that he's the creator of everything, every speck of matter, across trillions of light years of space, the creator of beauty and shapes and colors, which dazzle us. If you believe that he's the sustainer of all creation, the force which is presently holding the universe together, without him we would just dissolve away. If you believe that he's the goal of everything, that everything is for his glory, that all creation is for him and moving toward him, if you believe this, it becomes fixed in your heart and your soul. Then no false teaching, no false, empty, Christless philosophy has a chance to divert you from your relationship with him. Trading Christ, trading the Christ of the Bible, I should say, for something, for anything else, any other philosophy, way of thinking, is just crazy talk. 
Again, this is the heart of the book of Colossians. Everything else flows from it. For this Christ is the one who entered our world and died in our place. He did this that we might be reconciled to God. As Paul writes in chapter 1 still, verses 19 and 20, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ's full divinity makes it possible for his blood to reconcile all who trust in him and to affect the redemption of all creation. Paul goes on in chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5, to show that it's because of Christ's supremacy that that he's personally motivated and empowered to preach the gospel and minister uh, to, minister period, and minister to the Colossians. For Paul, everything is Christ. His heart for others flows from Christ from Christ's heart for him. Then in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says that Christ's supremacy in our lives should cause us to walk in him, to live for him who is supreme. What could be more logical than this? If Christ is who the New Testament, the Bible claims he is, then what other logical choice do we have but to live for him, to give our lives to him, to trust in him, to worship Him, to honor Him, to serve Him. Pardon my uh, word here, but you would have to be an idiot to not live for the one who is supreme over all things. Paul then in verse 8, which we, look, which we read, uh, warns the Colossians not to fall captive to the foolishness of these false teachers. He then gives the rationale for this based on the things he said, based on Jesus' fullness, Jesus' supremacy. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And you have been filled in him. So this is the, the little switch to the second area. It's Christ. Christ is supreme. Christ is everything. And you have been filled in him. Christ is filled with the fullness of deity, and we as Christians are full of his fullness. And then in chapters 2, verses 11 through 15, Paul explains what our fullness in Christ means. This is our identity in Christ. This is who you are in Christ if you're a believer, if you've trusted in him. Again, this is what I this is, I, is the second great truth of Colossians. Out of the first great truth, the supremacy of Christ, flows the second great truth, our identity in Christ. So because Christ is supreme, and if you've trusted in him, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ you were cut off from your sin. Your sin was removed, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." 
Now, we took a lot of time to go through this, and we're just reviewing now, so you have to remember everything I said 10 weeks ago. I don't know. But, but it's here. Because of Christ's supremacy, His divine fullness and sacrifice for us, we are filled in Him, which means we've died with Him. We've died to our own old sinful self. He's dealt with and forgiven our sins as only He could through His death on the cross. And we've been raised with Christ to new life. So summarizing, really the first two chapters of Colossians, chapters filled with theological truths about Christ and those who trust in Him, we can say that because of Christ's supreme divine fullness, that by His death on the cross, those who trust in Him are filled with Him. That, that we die to our old sinful life and receive a new life in Christ. We are new, full creatures in the supreme, fully divine Christ. And to accept anything less, any deceptive, Christless philosophy would be foolish. Amen? Okay, so that's the big picture of the first two chapters. Then beginning in chapter 3, Paul gives the Colossians and us instruction. So, first two chapters, mostly theology. Next two chapters, most, mostly practical application instruction. He gives us instructions, and these instructions are possible. We're able to do these instructions. We're able to live this way because we have new life in Christ. And this is how we sustain our new life in Christ, by following the instructions Paul gives. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, prepares, uh, exhorts, and give us, gives us a, a foundation for the instructions to come. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are, are, are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory." To experience this new life in Christ, our minds, our hearts, must be consistently be focused not on the things of this world, but upward on the things of God. We cannot be too heavenly minded. You may have heard the saying, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Not possible. He may be so self-righteous or pious or goody-goody, to not be any uh, earthly good, but never too heavenly minded. You can't be too heavenly minded. As one author expressed this, Lord, burn eternity in my, into my eyeballs. Give me eternity as the perspective I live by. Only when our eyes, our minds, our hearts are focused on the things of God can we really experience our new life in Christ. Only then can we live for Christ. Paul followed this marvelous exhortation with a series of specific instructions for living our new life. And I'm going to summarize each one of these just to give us this overall one-time shot at all these instructions. In, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 14, he explains that we are to put off or kill our old sinful self and to put on the garments of God, the character of God. Then in uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, he gives instructions for our personal life, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We are to let the word of Christ 
richly dwell within us. And this is to uh, flow into our experience with one another. We're to teach the Word to one another and join together in worshiping God through song. Then in chapter 3, verses 18 through 4-1, Paul gives instructions for experiencing new life in a Christian household. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, fathers finally we got to fathers. Forgot, it's Father's Day. So this is the Father's Day message here. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I just didn't have time for the Father's Day. Sorry, guys. I know, you guys don't care. Bond servants, obey your masters. Masters, treat your doulos, your bond servants, justly and fairly. Then in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, I'm running out of breath here. Paul gives instructions, uh, final instructions. He begins with a general call to pray steadfastly, watchfully, and thankfully. And then he calls his readers to pray, to pray for him, but to pray in general that the gospel is preached clearly. And to them, he, then he turns to them and to live in a way that the gospel is communicated to outsiders, those who are outside the church. So Paul's engaged, concerned heart, seeking to keep the Colossians from falling for false teaching, gives them a beautiful picture of Christ's supremacy. He also tells them what it means for them, and then and that, that they have a new full life in the supreme Christ. And then he gives them instructions for living for Christ, for living out their new life in Christ. That's the big overall message of Colossians. Put simply, Colossians combats false teaching by declaring the truth of both Christ's supremacy over all things and the believer's new full life in Christ. And then Paul puts a cherry on top, don't forget, last week, by describing his fellow workers and sending greetings from them, and in so doing, he exemplifies a new full life in Christ. Tychicus shows a new life of showed us a new life of service. Onesimus shows showed us a new life of transformation. Remember, there were eight eight people listed in the passage from last week. The six others listed. Paul shows a new a life of fellowship. There were three Jews and three Gentiles, and he shows that fellowship breaks barriers. Remember, Mark and Paul had their past disagreements, and he shows that fellowship forgives faults. And Epaphras, uh, like Paul, shows fellowship creates concern. Now, we still have the conclusion of the letter to come. But I think as the Colossians heard this letter read out loud, uh, it inspired them. It motivated them to walk away from the false teachers of their day and to begin to live their new life fully in and for the Supreme Christ. And I pray it does the same for us. And that brings us to our final point, the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Okay, so everything that's gone before is review. So now the sermon begins. Here we go. You know, my wife said, we're leaving for vacation, if you guys don't know, right? Our car's packed, we're driving to St. Louis. It'll take a few days, but we're driving to St. Louis after church. And my wife said, uh, well, you have control over the length of sermon. We could leave a little early, right? And I said, I really don't have control sometimes. It's, it, what is there is, is there. But this is going to be a brief little sermonette as we conclude. Paul's conclusion includes his final greetings and a three-part encouragement. 
First, in verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Like a Colossae, Paul had never been to Laodicea, but he's still engaged in their lives. His heart compelled him to greet the church there and the woman, Nymphia, who so graciously hosted it. Don't, that's all we know about her. She was willing to host a church in her house, which is great. Second, in verse 16, which we looked at earlier, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of, La of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Paul encouraged this exchange of letters he was sending to the Laodicea and Colossae. He wanted them to read, be read aloud to the churches. We know that according to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, that, the future, uh, Laodicea, that in the future Laodicea would, would need all the help they could get because it became a church that was neither hot or cold but, and was uh, uh, spewed out by Christ. Third, in verse 17, Paul encouraged a, a leader in the Colossian church and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. In Philemon, chapter 1, verses, I mean, only one chapter, Philemon, verses 1 and 2, we read, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. From this, uh, many scholars believe Archippus was the son of Philemon and Aphia. Perhaps Epaphras had told uh, Paul of Archippus's uh, growing spiritual life, the witness his parents had poured into him, and uh, his potential for ministry. At any rate, Paul reminded him that his ministry originated in the Lord. It was divinely given and must be treated as such. Paul told him that he must fulfill it. The Lord has given you this ministry, but you must engage in it. You must do it. You must step out in faith. You must act. And I think there's a word for us here, for our hearts here. Those who cultivate a heart for others, like Paul, like Epaphras, fulfill the ministry that God gives them. They don't give up. They continue on. And that's what Paul is encouraging Archippus to do. And that takes us to Paul's fourth and final encouragement. See, we're really quick here in this sermonette. Remember, he's been dictating this letter. Many believe this is because Paul's thorn in the flesh was his eyesight. He just couldn't see well enough to write legibly. But as he draw, which is amazing to me, I mean, if that's the case, if you can't see, I mean, you know how long it takes me to put together this stuff because I can see and write things down and go check here and that and read this and that. And Paul just does this all from a spirit-inspired mind these uh, beautiful truths come forth. But he draws to a conclusion. We can picture him stretching out his hand to the stylus. Uh, wasn't a ballpoint. It was a little pen that dipped the ink in. To personally write his last words. We can even imagine that as he stretched out, as he went to get the, the stylus, the chain which fastened him to the Praetorian guard at his side hindered him. His thoughts turned to the fact that he was imprisoned. He was probably exhausted after pouring out his heart to the Colossians, and he writes, I, Paul, 
Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul was in jail, but no power on earth could cage his heart for the people of God. He's given them so much of himself in this letter. He's poured it out, and he's asked them for one thing. He's asked for one thing for himself. Well, two. He did ask them to pray that he would preach the gospel clearly, and he asked them to remember his chains. Remember that I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. Never forget why Paul's in prison. He didn't have to be there. All he had to do was say, okay, Jesus plus the Roman gods. That's all he had to say. They didn't mind Jesus. It was, uh, you have to worship Jesus and Caesar. Remember that I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel, for standing firm in the gospel. Remember that I'm willing to be chained up for the sake of Christ and you. My, he could have, you know, just went into the shadows, believed what he believed, and not proclaimed it to others, avoided jail. Remember me and pray for me, brothers and sisters. Paul then turns back to the Colossians and closes with the words, Grace be with you. You know, we could just cast that off, but I don't think, I don't think Paul or the Spirit of God writes anything without uh, meaning it. A closing word of grace was actually the trademark of Paul in all of his letters. Grace speaks of God's unmerited, unearned favor. May God's unmerited, freely given favor uh, be with you. May you in all you say and do in your new life, in your new full life in Christ, experience the grace of God. Grace that comes from God and is available because of Jesus Christ, who is supreme over all things. It's only because of the supreme Christ who made the supreme sacrifice by dying in our place by taking our sins upon himself, that you and I can receive the grace of God. That you and I can live new, grace-filled lives in Christ. May we daily remember the reality and joy of being filled with the grace of God through Jesus Christ. May God's grace cause us to seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And may we receive the grace necessary to live like Paul, to follow his example as he followed the example of Christ, to open our hearts, to open our hearts to the Lord, to re renew and re rejuvenize our relationship with the Lord even daily, and to open our hearts to others, to allow others into our lives, to allow others, both the, the people of God who can be messy and outsiders who can be even messier. And as we do, as we receive the grace of God, which comes from the supreme Christ, may we live our lives with full, engaged hearts. May we be filled to overflowing with Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this letter that we have been able to walk through, Father. And I pray that that, that it's just not some academic exercise, but I pray that you would fill our hearts. You would fill our hearts with Christ. You would open our hearts that we might minister to others, that we might be a blessing, that we might understand deep in our souls the supremacy of Christ, the greatness of Christ, and that would overflow as we reach out to others, as we care for others, as Christ has cared for us.
Father, be with us and bless us. Give us your grace. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Well, as we uh, close out with our last song of worship here, if you'd like to stand. Oh. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Hello. Uh, I did want to give you guys a heads up for what's coming. So I'm leaving to go on vacation. I'll be gone two weeks. I'll be here the 9th, but I won't be preaching because I'm coming back. The So we're going to have next week, Brian's going to preach. We're going to start preaching this series through just different psalms. Brian's going to preach next week. And then uh, Dr. Dr. Andreas from CBU is going to preach the following week uh, through a psalm. He was one of those that came, if you came to our critical biblical courses, he came and shared with us during that time. And then the third week, the ninth, right, the Sean, our wonderful elder Sean will be sharing. What uh, Do you know the psalm you're going to be preaching from, Brian? Psalm 1. It's that first one. So it should be easy enough to find. So look at that for next week. Andreas, do we know what he's... No, John? 1 and 73. So somewhere in between there. No, I don't know. He could be doing... Andreas may be doing Psalm 119, the whole thing. And you guys will be here for a while. But anyway, so I just wanted to give you guys a heads up for that. Be looking at the psalm. Maybe take this summer to even read through a number of psalms yourself and let God bless you in that way. All right. Liam? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, uh, if you'd like to stand with me, we're going to close out with our last song of worship here.